Let's open the precious Word of God, bound and sealed up to many, but open to us and see what the Lord can teach us from Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Every time we open the Bible, there should be eager anticipation for what we might see there and what we might hear from any passage of Scripture that we can learn from it more about our God and what He would desire from our lives. Isaiah 7. Now, you know a verse in Isaiah 7 that should help you recognize and identify the chapter, and that's the 14th verse of the promise of a virgin-born son to come in the future named Emmanuel, which the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 identifies as the Lord Jesus Christ. There's other things in this chapter, though, and we want all 25 verses, including the 25th verse about Maddox on a hill and the fear of briars and thorns not going thither, and so forth and so on. If you want an obscure verse in the Bible, it's Isaiah 7.25. But that's what we get to at the end. I want you to rejoice that we have the Word of God in writing before us and a great deal of understanding compared to many. In chapter 8 and verse 20, it tells us to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so to the law and to the testimony we go. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So Psalm 19.7 uses those two words for the Bible that we have right here in 820. We're opening the Bible to Isaiah 7. The theme of this chapter in its 25 verses are that God gave Ahaz and Judah comfortable promises, but they rejected him to make an alliance with Assyria to defend them against the alliance of Israel and Syria. And that choice on their part ruined them. Lord, help us. Let me give you a tiny bit of background. I have struggled all week at trying to figure out how to help you remember a few of these places, persons, cities at this particular juncture of Isaiah's ministry. There are four nations involved. Judah was a tribe. Now it's a nation. And it has part of Benjamin with it and its capital city is Jerusalem. Very small. Just the immediate area around the city of Jerusalem. Israel is the name for the ten tribes that left 243 years earlier when they rebelled against Rehoboam and formed their own nation under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. They were outside the Davidic lineage. They were called Israel. They were called Ephraim as a nickname. They are the ten tribes, and they're larger than Judah, considerably larger. And north of them, as it is today on a map, is Syria. And Syria was a larger nation than Israel. But Israel, the ten tribes, and Syria, the nation north of them, joined together in an association, in a confederation, to attack Judah. 
And so Judah is going to be terrified by these two larger nations joining together to come after them. North of Syria, and equal in some respects to the great empires of the world, is Assyria. Assyria, named in the first couple chapters of the Bible from Asher, situated between the rivers of Tigris and Euphrates in Mesopotamia. Assyria was very comparable to Babylon in size and its dominion. The reason you don't hear about Assyria in the book of Daniel is very simple. The book of Daniel was written when Daniel was in Babylon. Assyria was already history. So Daniel doesn't mention Assyria. When Nebuchadnezzar sees the image of four world empires, it's Babylon, it's Persia, it's Greece, and it's Rome, and there's no mention of Assyria because Assyria is already history, and that would be redundantly worthless to mention. But Assyria was a huge empire. So we've got little Judah, bigger Israel, bigger Syria. Israel and Syria joined together against Judah. Judah is God's favorite tribe because through Judah, Jesus Christ will come. And above Syria is the mighty empire of Assyria. And so Judah, in rebellion, is going to be tempted to make an alliance with Assyria to come and beat on Syria and Israel. I could have used maps, but I've already given you the maps. But I wanted to tell you that. Now, the king of Judah is Ahaz. He's the father of Hezekiah. But he's the opposite of Hezekiah. He is a very wicked king. We have had Uzziah, Jotham, both good kings, and then this very bad king, Ahaz, in Judah. The king in Israel is Pekah. And the Lord wants to remind you, the son of Remaliah, over and over, the son of Remaliah, a captain of the previous king, who had a sedition against the throne, and so there's Pekah. And Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N, is the king of Syria. And so it's Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and Rezin, the king of Syria, whose capital was Damascus, and the capital of Israel was Samaria. Those two would get together. Now the king of Assyria at this time is Tiglath-Pileser. And he's mentioned several times in the Bible, but not by name in the book of Isaiah. Tiglath-Pileser. After him will be Shalmaneser, who will take Israel captive. After him will be Sennacherib. And the son of Sennacherib will be Esarhaddon. All of them are named in the Bible. We have Sargon stuck there in the middle, but you can forget Sargon for right now. I want you to remember Tilgath-Pileser, Shalmaneser, Sennacherib, Esarhaddon. We'll have slight mention of those four successive kings of Assyria. There are precious things taught to us in Isaiah 7 as there is in the whole Bible. The Bible says every word of God is pure. The Bible says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The capital city of Assyria is Nineveh. Jonah went to Nineveh. Nahum rips Nineveh 
and foretells its destruction 160 years after Jonah. Jonah saved it at one point, a natural salvation of their destruction, but God destroyed them later by the Babylonians. So it was Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, Damascus, the capital of Syria, Samaria, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And if you read 2 Kings 15 and 16 last night and 2 Chronicles 28, you encountered all these names, except three of those kings of Assyria that we'll run into. Isaiah chapter 7 has three parts. The first nine verses, fearful Ahaz is comforted by God. Our God is so merciful. God knew the character of Ahaz because of what had already been shown and what would be shown by that man, but God is merciful to give a comfortable promise to Ahaz if he only would have believed it. Look at the last sentence of verse 9. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. You have just taken the throne, Ahaz. If you will not believe the message I bring from God, you will not be established. And I say that to every one of us. If we do not believe what God tells us in His Word, we shall not be established in our own lives. So the first section is the first nine verses, the fearful Ahaz comforted by God through Isaiah the prophet. Then verses 10 through 16, the profane Ahaz promised the Messiah. I call him profane Ahaz because he mocked God for wanting an offering to give him a sign. What appears to you to be humble reverence for Jehovah is not humble reverence at all. He has already made up his mind and his ambassadors are likely already in Damascus to bring Tiglath-Pileser to his aid. And we'll get to that momentarily. But God promised the Messiah in verse 14, and he used the Messiah and the growth of a child and the development of a child's conscience to tell Ahaz, all you got to do is wait two or three years, and I'm going to rip Syria and Israel to pieces by Assyria. The third section is verses 17 through 25. The wicked Ahaz would be punished by Assyria, and it would be the worst judgment brought upon Judah to that point since 243 years earlier when there was civil war and 10 tribes left them to form their own nation. That's a pretty bad event to a nation. When 83% of your nation disappears and becomes another nation and is constantly at war with you. That's what's referenced there in uh, verse 17. The day that Ephraim departed from Judah, that's when the, uh, the 12 tribes broke up in the days of Rehoboam. America is a fearful, profane, and wicked nation comparable to Ahaz and much of Judah. So America should expect similar judgment from God. We live, we're living in the midst of it. But there were faithful brethren living in the midst of Ahaz's Judah. And so Isaiah speaks to them at times. He rebukes the nation and he rebukes Ahaz at times and he comforts the faithful remnant that is among those wicked doers in Judah, just like we are being addressed this morning by God while we live in America. I hope that you notice in this chapter that like much of Isaiah, fabulous jewels 
are inserted here and there, like verse 14. I mean, verse 14 is kind of strange where it's located. But it's there, and there's more than just verse 14, which we'll get to. Isaiah chapters 7 through 10 should be read together, for they form a section about Assyria against both houses of Israel, meaning the ten tribes and Judah. Assyria is going to be their enemy. And it's seven, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. And so when you read them together, it's all about the same theme. We have been to chapter 10 many times over the years, because in chapter 10, beginning at verse 5 and running to verse 19, is a description of Sennacherib. Remember, who, you're the saw, buddy, and I'm shaking you, so don't get too puffed up. You're the axe, and I'm wielding you. Don't get too puffed up. That's chapter 10. That's, that's all, oh, Assyrian. And it was the Assyrian that wrecked havoc in that part of the world, and it was Sennacherib. So we've been there before. And so I give you this background for you to get your arms around Isaiah chapter 7. May the Lord bless us to do that. The Assyrians are specifically named eight times in th those four chapters that I just mentioned. Now, I have told you that from chapter 6 to chapter 12 can be called the book of Emmanuel because the remnant of God is in chapter 6. Emmanuel, the Son of God, is in chapter 7. Emmanuel, as a name for Judah, is in chapter 8. And chapters 11 and 12 are all about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we call it the book of Emmanuel. Because even in the middle of these chapters about Assyria, we have verses like this in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called... Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And that's right there in the middle of it in Isaiah 9, 6. And verse 7 goes on in that particular chapter to describe God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will uphold the kingdom of David and it will not be lost. Verses 1 through 9. Let me read them to you. Fearful Ahaz is comforted by God with a wonderful promise. Isaiah 7.1 And it came to pass, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou, and shear Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed, and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah 
and vex it. And let us make a breach therein for us and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Amen and amen. amen. That was a comforting promise to know that God was not going to let their conspiracy stand. That's why I'm not a conspiratorialist. No conspiracy in the history of the world can stand that God doesn't put his stamp of approval upon, first of all. And second of all, there really aren't conspiracies anyway. But even if there were, the Lord says, only my will is going to be done. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? And so we have the first third of the book of Isaiah chapter 7 in this section of God comforting Ahaz by Isaiah the prophet. I have said enough for you to understand verse 1. There was more than one assault made against Judah. Did you read last night that in one assault, Pekah killed 120,000 mighty men of Judah? The population of Judah was only five or 600,000, and they lose a quarter of the nation? Incredible. 200,000 taken captive? Did you like that story, though, about God raising up Oded the prophet? See, it's not here, so I'm just mentioning it. Was that a great story? 200,000 taken captive by these bloodthirsty Israelites that hated Judah. But Oded the prophet stood up and said, Do you understand what you are messing with right now? You're already a wicked nation, and they knew that they didn't worship at Jerusalem. It's a long story. They knew they didn't worship at Jerusalem, and so they were wicked. And Oded the prophet says, Do you know what's going to happen if you abuse these 200,000 of God's people in Judah? You better clothe them, feed them, and carry them back. And so they did. Unheard of. Unheard of. Unheard of coming from Israel against Judah. If you go back and read the history of the last 243 years, they were constantly at war with each other. Rehoboam against Jeroboam. And all their successors were constantly at war with each other. But here they give back 200,000 prisoners. God can do anything. Manasseh was the worst king in the history of Judah, taken captive by the Assyrians and hauled to Babylon. Don't get confused. It's the Assyrians that took Manasseh captive to Babylon in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And he repented and humbled himself greatly while he was in prison in Babylon. And the king of Assyria put him back on his throne in Judah. Amazing things can happen when your land is called Oh, Emmanuel. What does that mean? God is with us. When God is with us, he can change any heart, any life, any set of circumstances. Oh, Lord, help us to see that and to believe it with all our hearts. Verse 2, the rumor hits that the two have united and are coming again at Judah. 
And it says that his heart was moved. That is the house of David. That is King Ahaz, the son of David. In the, in the passages that you read last night, did you read the letter that King Ahaz... See, I have to refer to things you read last night because I'm not going to turn you there. I, I I'm hoping that you'll do a little tiny bit of work. I'll spoon feed you, but just as long as you'll do a little work. Did you read the letter that King Ahaz sent to Tiglath-Pileser of the Assyrian Empire, I am thy servant, and I am thy son. I don't know what you do when you read the Bible. I can get pretty upset when I read the Bible, and I run into things like that. A son of David saying, I am a son of Tiglath-Pileser, a son of Assyria. But it was this, the Bible will say, and you read it last night, this is that Ahaz. The Lord putting there by the Holy Spirit a point of emphasis, this was a wicked man. He hears, about the, he hears the rumor of the, the, the assault coming against Judah in verse 2, and he's moved, and the people of Judah are moved like the trees are moved by the wind. And so the Lord tells Isaiah to go meet him in a particular place, and that upper conduit with water that Hezekiah is going to enhance is an important place for the preser preservation of the city of Jerusalem because you've got to have water. And when you're up on a mountain, you've got to have a supply of water or up on seven mountains that made up the city of Jerusalem, the Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, and others, you need water supply. And so there's where the king is going, and the Lord tells Isaiah, go meet him. You know, we're not told that Isaiah knew any other, by any other means where the king was going to be, and given a time of war, the king probably wasn't letting too many know where he was going when he was leaving the fortress of Jerusalem to go out there into a field. But Isaiah knew because God told him, because God knows everything, and, and directed Isaiah to go there. Now in verse 3, he tells Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sheer Jashub, thy son. And everyone gets too excited and too concerned about Sheer Jashub. Sheer Jashub is one of two named sons of Isaiah, and the two names are very important. And the name of the second one is, is more important in certain respects than the first one, because chapter 8 in our second service today will be about Maher Shalal Hashbaz, the other son of Isaiah. But this is Sheer Jashub. Now, Maher Shalal Hashbaz has his own meaning. Sheer Jashub has the meaning, a remnant shall return. What was the last verse that we have studied in Isaiah before chapter 7? But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and be eaten, and it shall be counted for the holy seed. Do you remember that? I mean, it's a long time ago because it's... It's the previous verse. But he's got Sheer Jashub with him, whose name means a remnant shall return. So he's got this boy with this weird name, a remnant shall return, as a living demonstration of God's promise that there would be a remnant that would return. And that is in 613. And it's going to be in 10, chapter 10, verses 20 through 22. 
And it's going to be in other places as well. It was in chapter 1. Except the Lord of Sebaoth had left us a very small remnant. We should have been made like unto Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he's got this boy with him. It's another promise to Ahaz. A remnant shall return. It's God's mercy upon Judah. And I'm not going to press the boy any further than that. We're going to encounter him a couple more times where I'm going to try to correct anything you might read or hear elsewhere. But there's no reason to make more out of sheer Jashub than an object lesson of there's a remnant in the nation and it's going to survive. Because that was already taught in chapter 1, chapter 6. It's going to be taught in chapter 10. And so he says, take sheer Jashub with you. So there's King Ahaz. How's your boy sheer Jashub doing, Isaiah? Just to say it, a remnant shall return. I mean, so you don't get that. All you do is look at it and say, how do I pronounce this thing? And that, that's the wrong way to read the Bible. You should, the, the name has meaning. A remnant shall return. And so that's in verse 3. And Isaiah, say unto Ahaz, I'm in verse 4 now, take heed and be quiet, fear not. I, I love verse 4. Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted. And when we have trouble facing us, if we put our trust in the Lord, calm down. Stop worrying. Trust the Lord. Smile about it. Everything's going to be okay. What are you stressed out for? Yeah, I'll get stressed out for you. I get stressed out for all of you. Not too much. But I don't want you to get stressed out at all. Isn't this verse great? Verse 4. Ahaz. Now this is the prophet to the king. Take heed and be quiet. You're all stressed out. You're all worried. You're running around. You're out here in the field checking your water supply. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. Don't be timid. Don't be intimidated. Don't be overwhelmed by these two big nations coming to beat on your little nation. Don't worry about it. And then the Lord mocks, mocks their conspiracy. He says, neither, don't be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. And they were two wicked, fierce, ferocious leaders of two nations. And the Lord says, don't worry about them. They're nothing but smoking firebrands. A firebrand is a stick with a burned end and a fire. And the Lord's pulled it out and doesn't even have any flame on it. It can't light anything up. It's just smoking. He says their fire, their fire and their fury is just a bunch of smoke. Don't worry about them. Oh, oh, we need to do that. You know, I confessed to you maybe last Sunday or the previous Sunday about fearing the size of the, the Soviets' military when I was a boy and was always keeping track of who had the most nukes at any point in time and who had the most tanks and whose tanks were faster and all that. You don't need to know any of that. They're all smoking firebrands compared to the Lord of hosts. Now, he can light a fire they can't put out and he can put out anything they might light. And we want to remember that about every part of life. That's in verse 4. And see, it's, it just calls him the son of Remaliah, though you know it is Pekah, from verse 1. Verse 5 starts a new sentence, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, 
Let us go up against Judah and vex it and do this and do that. Let's make a breach. Let's put our own puppet king in the nation. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Now those three verses that we have right there that I just read to you, 5, 6, and 7, are the explanation for verse 4. There's no reason for you to be afraid. There's no reason for you to be faint-hearted because it will not stand. I happen to know everything they have planned. I know the details of what they have planned, even to the puppet king they're going to put on the throne of Jerusalem. Now, how did Isaiah know that? Was he a Rothschild with representatives in every city? How did Isaiah know it? Because God told him. God knew everything about the conspiracy against Judah. It shall not stand. Do you love the words of verse 7? Is there something in chapter 7 other than verse 14 for you? How about verse 7? When God says it shall not stand. A brother in the state of North Carolina this morning, with a couple of you with him this morning, was told three years ago, he had two years ago, two and a half years ago, he had three years to live. It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. When we hear things and we think things, we go to this verse. It shall not stand. I love my God who says things like this. America has never faced a foe as great as the combined armies of Israel and Syria against such a small nation as Judah. And yet God said, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Okay, what does that mean? The capital of Syria is Damascus. It's not Jerusalem. The king in their capital is reason. It ain't you, Ahaz. That's what, that's, he's, he's telling Ahaz, don't worry about Syria. They have their nation, they have their capital, and they have their king. It's not Judah, Jerusalem, or Ahaz. And then he throws in this prophecy. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. Now it's only going to be 25 years, 20, 25 years later, that Shalmaneser is going to come and take most of Israel captive. Tiglath-Pileser took some of Israel captive, and you read about some of that last evening. And so there's a long drawn out process of punishing Israel with blow after blow after blow of the Assyrians. And so when I just told you, and if you look at the little, the little timetable that I gave you a few weeks ago, it's going to show that Israel fell about 20, 25 years after this event. But this says 65 years. But notice, it doesn't say that Samaria is going to fall. It says that Israel, Ephraim, would no longer even be considered a people. How do you accomplish that? By the immigration policies of the king of Assyria. Do you remember? Right. He would keep taking Israelites and throw them into various countries around the Middle East and bring Babylonians and Persians and others and put them into the place where the ten tribes were. And the last one of those was the son of Sennacherib, Esarhaddon, and Ezra chapter 4 tells us about it. 
so that the 65 years, and it is a Bible chronological dilemma, it isn't really. Because if you go to Ezra 4 and find out all the various deportations of the 10 tribes, the last one was by S.R. Haddon, and it is exactly 65 years after this. It's just beautiful. So there were various levels of the destruction of Israel, the 10 tribes. They had their capital overthrown in about the sixth year of Hezekiah, which is just a few years from now. But there's still time to run because losing your capital doesn't mean you're no longer a people. What in the world can happen so that you're no longer a people? Even if somebody conquers you and sets up a puppet government, you're still a people. But how do you stop being a people? Because all your people have been taken away and scattered in various nations and foreigners brought in and are living in your house. Just, America's never faced a foe like this. Right. You know, when I used to be afraid, and I'm telling you stuff, I'm, I was talk, I'm talking about being a single-digit child and, and reading too much, too much certain kind of political military stuff as a boy. I enjoyed it, but uh, it didn't do me any good spiritually. I needed more verses like this. I, I needed this on my wall instead of posters of special forces. It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. And so that's verse 8. And verse 9, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. Do you understand? Don't worry about Israel. They've got their own nation, they've got their own capital, they've got their own king, and their king is Pekah, the son of Remaliah. The capital of Israel is not Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem is not Pekaliah. Pekah. Pekah is the king of Israel and stationed in the capital of Israel, Samaria. And so that's what these statements are. Don't worry about them. They are not going to take your capital city, nor your country, nor your throne. They have their thrones, they have their capital, they have their country. And don't worry about Ephraim. In 65 years, they won't even be a people, let alone having been beat by the Assyrians. They won't even be a people. And so that is the prophecy of Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 9, that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz when he went out to the field. He was totally terrified by the threat of this alliance coming against him. And so he's making efforts to get the Assyrians to come and help him out. And I want you to notice a couple of things that we should never forget. It's in verse 7. It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. And God has promised things about us, and he will take care of us. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. It, he doesn't just camp there, he delivers. And we should believe that promise. And then the last sentence of verse 9 that closes out the first part of Isaiah 7. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. So that, verse 7 and verse 9 conflict with each other to a certain degree. There's a conflict there. It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. But yet, if you won't believe the promise that I've just given you, and that promise did come to pass, and you read about it last night, surely ye shall not be established. So we want to believe everything God tells us. And we can be established in our lives. Now, he has all sorts of other purposes in our lives. And if he needs to teach us something, 
and chasten us in order to teach us something, then it may appear that he's going against one of these promises, but he is not. He's teaching us something. And you've got to recognize all that God is doing in our lives. But this is what Isaiah told King Ahaz, who was terrified of this alliance, confederation, association coming against him. But the Lord warned him, if you don't believe what I've just promised you on my own through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah told Ahaz, if you don't believe the wonderful news that I just gave you, you will not be established. How old was Ahaz when he died? 36 years old. And so that brings us through the first part of Isaiah chapter 7. Oh Lord, I love these words. Let there be no one in this assembly, no one that hears this sermon, that is ever like King Ahaz. Let us believe. Let us take your words, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass, and trust our lives in this world and eternal life in the world to come on your promises to do things like that for us. And let us believe so that you may establish us in every way that you've purposed to do. The second section is verses 10 through 16. Profane Ahaz is promised the Messiah. Beginning at verse 10 down through 16. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. God offered Ahaz a sign in the depth, as low as he wanted to go, or in the height, as high as he wanted to go. God offered him a sign to prove that his promises of the first nine verses were true. Ahaz refused the sign. That is not reverence for God. His mind is already made up against God, and that is why in the next verse, verse 15, the mockery is made of Ahaz for wearying Isaiah the prophet and wearying God himself by rejecting his offer. And so the Lord says, I'll give you my own sign. Before a child can grow up to the age of conscience, my promises here will already be fulfilled. The land that you abhor, that is Syria and Israel, in cahoots together, in an alliance together, will be destroyed. That quickly, in just a couple of years, and that is exactly what happened. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz in verse 10. Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Now, sometimes God doesn't offer signs. Sometimes when we want a sign, it is a lack of faith that provokes us to do such a thing when God has clearly stated something. 
But in this case, in this case, God offered Ahaz a sign. Hezekiah is going to get a sign. Remember, the shadow is going to move backward 10 degrees in the sundial of, oh, the sundial of Ahaz. The shadow is going to move backward. So sometimes a sign is a, we would all like signs. Who in the Bible liked the most signs? Gideon did. Gideon liked lots of signs to know that he should go take on the innumerable host of the Midianites. Gideon did make it to Hebrews chapter 11. Gideon did make it to Hebrews chapter 11. But this king Ahaz, in verse 12, is not sincere. He hates the Lord God, Jehovah. If you read the passages I gave you last night, when he went to meet Tiglath-Pileser in Damascus, the capital of Syria, he got into the capital of Syria, and he sees their altar. And it's different than the altar of God that Solomon had built back there in Jerusalem. He took a look at it and he said, no wonder the Syrians can beat me because they worship this God on this kind of an altar. So he had his engineers draw a blueprint of it and sent it back to Uriah the priest and said, I want this baby built right there in front of the, the temple and I want this furniture of Solomon's moved out of the way and I want to do this. And I want you to offer this offering this way and that offering that way. Did you, did you read all that? It's horrible. This man is not sincere about reverencing God. He doesn't care about the law of God or its testimony or God himself. And the answer to that is in verse 13, when the, when the Lord said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Are you going to reject the prophets that God has sent you? And now when God speaks to you directly and offers you a sign to prove that the promises of the first nine verses will come to pass, you mock that with, a, with hypocrisy and rebellion? This was not reverence toward God at all, and that's why the Lord responded to it the way he did in verse 13. So, here's the answer. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. If you don't want a sign, here's the sign that I'm going to give you. A virgin shall conceive. Now that's a pretty big sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 tells us that Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Look at 8.8. Look at chapter 8 and verse 8. The last two words are naming Judah. The breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel, God with us. Drop down two verses into verse 10. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. The last five words of Isaiah 8.10, for God is with us. God would be with his people through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, by Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us the great mystery of godliness is God was manifest in the flesh. John chapter 1 tells us in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is our doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. 
14 is a wonderful promise. And the Lord is using it as a sign, but Ahaz would never live the 655 years necessary to see Mary, a virgin, give birth to Jesus. So what's the sign to Ahaz if there's anything left for him? You know, we know this sign, don't we? Because we live on this side of its fulfillment. And millions of believers have loved this verse for 2,700 years. Thank you, Lord, for it. You know, Gabriel came to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and told her that she was highly favored in the sight of God and that she was going to have a son. And she said, how can this be that I know not a man? There's that virgin. And so all, those, all the, the accounts in the Gospels of Mary being talked to and her being a virgin just come back, joined with this, are why we believe that the God of heaven has done great and marvelous things in human history. And one of them is his son that was born of a virgin. And here is the first statement of it being a virgin as clearly as it is here. Now, he is called the seed of the woman as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And to be the seed of the woman when the whole Bible names children after their father is a pretty big statement in Genesis 3.15. But this is where it is stated that it's a virgin. Now, in 1952, five years before I was born, the National Council of Christian Churches brought forth on this planet a Bible called the Revised Standard Version, 1952. And verse 14 reads like this, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So virgin is taken out, young woman is put in. And this was, this was the first event that got a lot of preachers very angry about the Bible version issue. They hadn't detected the terror of these new Bible versions quite yet because there weren't that many. The revised version of England in 1881 was their property for 20 years until the Americans could copy it in 1901. And so we had the American Standard Version in 1901. They had the revised version of Westcott and Hort in 1881, 20 years later, we copy it and call it the American Standard Version. And things developed slowly. But in 1952, we have the revised Standard Version. Now, you, you typically don't revise standards, but that's a subject for another time. And this verse blew a lot of ministers' minds. This verse became a focal point about the false versions of the Bible being sold and promoted in America. But verse 14 is a wonderful promise. We understand every word of it. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. If you're not going to ask a sign of me, like a cloud form formation or moving the shadow back or something coming up out of the water, like a floating axe head that the Lord had done before in the first chapters of 2 Kings, I'll give you a sign myself. Because when Mary said, how can this be? The angel said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. This was the work of God for Mary to conceive while she was a virgin. And we, we, we love this verse. 
Behold, and it is something to behold. And we rejoice in it. God was manifest in the flesh. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There at the end of the word, you can see El, E-L for Elohim, of the Hebrew words for God, El, names for God, Elohim, God, among us and with us. God would be among us and with us, exactly what we know from reading Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. Butter and honey shall he eat, food of children in Israel and of the Middle East. Pages written about butter and honey, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Butter and honey do not make a child with a greater conscience than strained carrots and applesauce. But that was the food that you fed a baby. And a baby would grow up, and a baby would develop a conscience and conviction to refuse the evil and to choose the good. How long does it take? And, so, you know, I don't want to get off on this very far. How long does it take for a child to have a conscience and to know the difference between good and evil? The Bible says that there are children that don't know their left hand from their right hand, that don't know how to choose good or evil. And the, the Lord makes a difference in the taxation that He put upon the children of Israel by five and under. Five and under is a category. Five to 20 is a category. 20 to 60 is a category. Prime of life. And after 60 is a category. But usually children get a conscience and are able to understand good and evil sometime between two and five, three, four, five years of age. The illustration I've given you in the past is two-year-olds and three-year-olds of both sexes can sit together in a bathtub and play with boats and rubber ducks and think that everything is peachy. But somewhere around four or five, those same children don't like being in the bathtub together. What made the difference? What made the difference? They ate butter and honey. I'm trying to help you understand the verse. Butter and honey doesn't get you there any faster than Gerber's. It, it's just, you got to wait for them to grow up. But you don't have to wait very long. Because it only takes two or three or four years. And how long did it take for the promises of verses 1 through 9 to come to pass? Two or three or four years. It's just beautiful. And so the sign is, see, did you think Ahaz cared about a virgin giving birth 655 years later? We do. We do. Because bind up the law and seal the testimony, it's for my disciples. He didn't appreciate that. But in, in the full sign, and the full sign is three verses long. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. A virgin's going to have a son. This son, Jesus of Nazareth, would eat butter and honey. He's going to learn to refuse the evil and choose the good. Does the Bible tell us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature? In wisdom and in stature, Jesus grew like a child. Verse 16, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the lamb that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. I'll get Syria and Israel out of the way in as few years as it takes a child to grow up to know the difference between right and wrong. There you have the second section of, of Isaiah chapter 7. And in the middle of it is something for you and me. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the fulfillment of it. We live 2,000 years 
past the fulfillment of verse 14. We know Matthew 123. Why don't we look at Matthew 123 just for you to see it in print before we go on to section 3. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. The angels appeared to Joseph and told him to take Mary to be his wife and not to worry about it. And then we have verse 22. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And I showed you from chapter 8 how you can prove that Emmanuel means God with us by comparing chapter 8, verse 8, with chapter 8, verse 10. But we've also got this right here. And the prophet in verse 22 is none other than the prophet Isaiah that we have here in Isaiah 7. Oh, brethren, I, let me just have a minute to tell you that the confusion in the five verses that we just covered is very great. The seven verses. All the verses from 10 to 16, but especially around verse 14, the confusion is very great. Now, they know that verse 14 is primarily about the Messiah, but they get very messed up about why Sheer Jashub was there. And they want to worm Sheer Jashub in there. Unbelievable. Sheer Jashub is not Emmanuel, and Sheer Jashub was not born of a virgin. Unbelievable. The confusion. Let's keep it simple. My dad tried to teach me the KISS method a long time ago. And that is an engineering expression in the aeronautics field. Keep it simple, stupid. There's different ways of emphasizing those words. But Lord, help us keep it simple. Ahaz wouldn't ask a sign of you. You mocked them for wearying you and for wearying your prophets. You gave a sign anyway that's for us because it was sealed up and bound from him understanding it. And you explained anyway to him that in the time it takes for a child to grow up on baby food and be able to know the difference between right and wrong, both enemies would be taken care of. Beautiful. And we're going to come right back to that in chapter 8 with the second son's name. But the first son's name is not how quickly it would happen. That's the second son's name. The second son's name, Maher Shalah Hashbaz, means they hasten to the spoil to take the prey. Who? Assyria is racing to get there in time to fulfill the prophecy to take out the two enemies in the alliance against Judah. That's what Maher Shalah Hashbaz means. And it says so. That's the second sermon. But sheer Jashub is the Lord's always got a remnant from chapter 6 and from chapter 10. And he isn't Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 17. The Lord shall bring upon thee. The Lord is not happy with Ahaz. So don't think that verse 12 was sincere. Verse 13 should already have told you that it was not sincere. Everything else you know about Ahaz from the Bible should tell you it was not sincere. And verse 17 should tell you that it's not sincere. The Lord shall bring upon thee, that is King Ahaz, and upon thy people, and upon thy father's house, 
days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. He's the one coming. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns and upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely, by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. And it shall also consume the beard. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings, it shall even be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns. But it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. Wow! 7.25 sounds marvelous. 7.25 is one of the most obscure verses in the Bible. But we'll get to it in a moment, and context will always be our master, right? right. Context is our master in believing Bible study. Okay, we're not there yet. Verse 17, The Lord shall bring upon thee, that is Ahaz and Judah, time of trouble that will be the worst in 243 years since the civil war of Jeroboam breaking away from Rehoboam and taking ten tribes of Israel away from twelve. I mean, when you're a nation of twelve tribes and ten disappear and uh, stone your tax, your IRS agent that you send after them because you realize that's a lot of money going away. That's 83% of our fiscal budget. So they sent their IRS agent after the ten tribes and the ten tribes stoned them. And there was civil war since then. So it was a terrible, terrible event to the nation of Israel in total because of the wickedness of Solomon and Rehoboam. The Lord only kept Judah because he loved David and for the sake of the son of David. So that's what verse 17 is telling Ahaz. It is going to be terrible, the worst it's been in 243 years. And the Lord's going to bring it upon thee because it's going to come to pass in that day when it's time for this to take place. The Lord is going to hiss for the fly that's in Egypt. And he's going to hiss for the bee that's in Assyria. And he's going to bring all the Assyrians from both directions around Israel. Now, the Bible, around Judah, the Bible doesn't tell us much about the Egyptians coming. It does mention them. It does mention the Egyptians, but I want you to understand that the kingdom of Assyria stretched from the Tigris and Euphrates to the Nile and Egypt. Right. You will read about some battles in the Bible between Pharaoh Necho of Egypt against Assyria, and Assyria will beat them. Just remember that. And if you look at a map of the Assyrian Empire, it extends all the way into Egypt, but the Lord's going to hiss for flies and for bees, and they're going to land everywhere. Those flies and bees are going to land everywhere in the land of Judah, and so that's what verses 18 and 19 are teaching. And we learned about that hissing in chapter 5 and verse 26, when the Lord would lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. 
and hissing is an S sound or similar to a whistle that bee, that farmers, those that kept bees, used to use to take a swarm from a hive to a field. It's not known about anymore because we're not as smart as those that went before us. You think we're smart because you have a heated steering wheel in your vehicle. But there's other ways of measuring smartness. And when men could control bees, listen, I wish I could control bees. When I go out to read the Bible on my deck and a bumblebee appears the, the size of a hummingbird, I lose an interest in reading the Bible under God's lighting. I want to go inside and read it under my lighting and get away from that dive bomber that's buzzing around me. All I can think of, that stinger is so big, I'd lose a limb. Back to the seriousness of God's precious word. The Lord was going to hiss. We've learned about hissing from 526. Do you know if we will read the Bible in order, it's amazing how much we can learn? When you run into the name of Sheer Jashub, and you already know in 613 there's a remnant that's going to return, it's just precious. We just need to read going forward. Remember, there weren't chapter divisions. There weren't even verse divisions. So when you, when you open the book of Isaiah, you started and worked to, through it. And here we are working through it in chapter 7. And so the Lord is saying in verse 17, since you don't want a sign from me, and since you don't believe what I'm going to do, and since I warned you if you don't believe, you're not going to be established, then after I get rid of these two enemies of yours that are in an alliance, I'm going to bring that Assyria that's going to take care of your enemies, he's then going to take care of you. Terrible. The king of Assyria would have turned around and gone back to Assyria if Ahaz would have humbled himself and believed the message. Are you believing the message God's given you? And it shall, it's going to come to pass in that day that the Lord's going to hiss and bring the Assyrians from every angle, and they're going to come and, and land everywhere in your nation. Verse 20, in the same day, that is this time of judgment, when God's going to turn Assyria against you, shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired. That's a barber. When you hire a razor, that's a barber. Who's the barber? In the same day shall the Lord shave with the barber, namely, by them beyond the river. That's the river Euphrates. When river is in the Bible without a name or other description, it's the huge Euphrates River. By the king of Assyria, he is going to shave your head. He's going to shave the hair of the feet. And if you're confused about that, just remember the definition of a word euphemism. And I go on. Mark your calendars. And it shall also consume the beard. There's a barber coming. There's a hired razor. You hired the king of Assyria, Ahaz, to come and cut down Syria and Israel. That barber is going to cut you. That barber is going to shave your head, shave other parts of your body, and take your beard. And to, to lose a beard in Israel was a terrible calamity. But they were going to be stripped of their glory and their honor as a nation. They were going to be reduced to poverty. Did you read some verses last night that God put Judah low because of Ahaz? And this is what was going to happen. And the barber is the hired razor that Ahaz hired because he hired the king of Assyria to come and help him against Israel and Syria. And God hires these kings because the Bible teaches very plainly in Isaiah, we'll run into it, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, 
that when God calls a nation to overtake and overthrow another nation, he gives that nation's wealth to that king as their wages. So it's hired by Ahaz, who paid the king of Assyria, and it's hired by God, who gave up the wealth of Israel and Syria and Judah to the king of Assyria. Because Ahaz wouldn't believe. They're going to be shaved. This is not shearing. This is not polling. Two different words used in the Bible for cutting. This is shaving with a razor. Shave with a razor. Their honor, their glory. Judah, God's people, His church. And so now we have five verses that describe the desolation and poverty that would come in Judah. The first two verses are about diet and farm animals and farming and the lack of plowing. And the, the last three verses are about vineyards and special hills where vineyards would ordinarily be planted, maybe fruit trees along with them, like we find in the Bible described for us. And they're going to end up just being trampled by farm animals, including lesser cattle. They're just, animals are going to be wandering everywhere because the fences and the hedges will all be broken down and the whole nation messed up. So the first two verses about what they're going to eat, verses 21 and 22, And it shall come to pass in that day when Assyria blasts Judah for Ahaz's sins, that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. Now, what was Israel known for before this? There's, a, there's an F word and there's an H word. Farmers were known for having flocks and herds. Flocks and herds. Aren't there descriptions in the Bible of massive flocks and herds? Like Solomon had and others had? Nabal? Nabal had to have a huge, a huge operation to shave, I mean, to shear his sheep. But it's going to change so drastically that it's going to come to pass that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. That's all he's going to have. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. They're going to be reduced to baby food. Haven't we already been told that butter and honey is baby food? You say, well, what's man food? Come on. What did, Israel, what did David send Israel home with after he dedicated the Ark of the Covenant? A loaf of bread, a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine. Bread, meat, wine, that's an adult meal. Baby food is butter and honey. You say, well, why is there an abundance of milk? Because all the fields are wide open to one cow. One cow can go wherever it wants to and eat as much as it wants to. There's no competition for the, the grass. It shall be, notice, in these five verses, are we reading about a, a promise of comfort to the Jews, or is this a description of their desolation and poverty? It is a description of their desolation and poverty because that's the whole section here, the last verses of Isaiah chapter 7. So verses 21 and 22 are describing that farming has disappeared. Real farming is using oxen to pull a plow and raise grains for bread and vineyards for wine and to have enough to feed animals for slaughter. And none of that's happening. He's just taking care of this one young cow so that it can eat wherever it wants to and it's giving more milk than a family can drink. 
If you've got a real cow, it's going to give more milk than a family can drink, and so they eat butter and they forage for honey. Do you want to know what these are called in our modern social study books? Hunters and gatherers are, is coming. They're gathering honey, wild honey. Does the Bible tell us that wild honey could be found like when Jonathan found it and dipped the, the tip of his, his staff in it and enlightened his eyes? And so verses 21 and 22 are describing the total change of agriculture that a man has one young cow, two sheep, and he's taking care of them. The cow's giving lots of milk because there's no competition for the pastures and he's going to eat butter and honey because that's what they're going to do. There's no, no mention made of bread, wine, meat, figs, raisins, and all the other stuff that has to be raised and is raised throughout the rest of the Bible. God is going to impoverish them. And when you do not have God's priorities, you put your wages into a hole with, into a bag with holes in it. Into a bag with holes in it from Malachi chapter 1. So that the Lord taught in Malachi chapter 1, consider your ways. You're working hard, but the wages you earn are going into a bag with holes in it. Consider your ways. Ahaz didn't consider his ways, and this is what happened to Judah. Now we have three verses about vineyards. These are on hills. You say, how do you know that vineyards were built on hills? Have you ever looked at a vineyard? Have you ever gone online and taken a tour of wine country in California or other places? Like the, like the Bordeaux section of France or the hilly area of northern Italy? You say, can you prove it from a Bible? Sure. That's why I brought it up. We've already been there. See, if we read the Bible from beginning to end, it's amazing what can happen. The number of people that write me, and it happens every single week, they want to start at the end and ask me questions about Revelation, but they don't want to read Daniel. If they would read Daniel, they wouldn't have very many questions for me. Isaiah chapter 5. Just drop, drop back two chapters. And let's remind ourselves about God's description of a vineyard. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. This is Isaiah 5.1. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine. What couldn't you allow into a vineyard? Why did you have to fence it? Why did you have to put a hedge about it? What couldn't you, you couldn't allow farm animals into your vineyard, or they'd eat what you are relying on for your grapes, raisins, and wine. So we have in these last three verses, and it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings. The only time this word occurs in the Bible and it refers to a thousand pieces of silver. And if you go to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8 and verse 11, Solomon had such a vineyard that he got a thousand pieces of silver for its annual yield. It shall even be for briars and thorns. What was once a beautiful vineyard is now just overgrown with briars and thorns. And a vineyard is an income-producing asset. Did the virtuous woman understand that? Yes, she did. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither. Come thither where? Thither is hither. Hither is thither. Where is thither? They'll come to the vineyards. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall be over shall become briars and thorns. These are hunters, gatherers. What should we call this? A fourth world economy. Let's not call it a third world economy because that's disrespectful. 
These people are reduced to foraging for honey. They have no agriculture. Briars and thorns are growing over everything. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, a mattock is a hoe. They had better hoes than we have. They had a hoe on one side and a hooked pick on the other side, and that was a mattock. You know what a hoe looks like so that you can pull soil, and it has a pick to loosen it for you to pull it all in one tool. On hills, hills deserve the, was the most fertile property and the best property for vineyards and for fruit trees and so things like that that you would plant with a hoe rather than a plow plowing up a field behind oxen. These are special, fertile, they were called fruitful back in 5, 1, and 2 hills. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, they weren't for plowing, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns. There would be no hedges or fences left to keep the animals out. That's why the word fear is there, which is what kept animals out when there were enough briars and thorns put together to create the fence that would protect the vineyard. But instead, those vineyard, those precious spots on the top of hills that could be for vineyards and where men might try to plant something with a mattock, it's going to be trampled by the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle because there were no longer fields and divisions, fences and hedges to keep the oxen and the cattle. They would wander everywhere and trample the great ground that should be a vineyard and they should be drinking wine and having bread with steak. But instead they're eating baby food. My favorite five verses from chapter 7. Verse 4, don't be afraid. Does the Bible tell us that in Hebrews chapter 13? It sure does. What can man do unto me? Verse 4 of Hebrews 7, take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted. Don't be afraid. Verse 7, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Amen. Our God defends. Verse 9, you better believe it or you'll not be established. And I want every one of you established in your lives on earth with good men and in heaven with God, growing in favor with Him. Verse 14, Emmanuel, God with us, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 20, the hired razor, the barber that would shave all the glory, all the honor of that nation and of that man because they rejected the word of the Lord. If you think that your life is bad right now and you do not want to believe God, it can get so much worse than it is right now if you do not believe what he says. He can send a razor and shave you thoroughly from top to bottom if you heard me and if you can read the verse. May the Lord bless us to love his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to never be afraid and to establish ourselves by faith. And may he bless us as a church to put into practice Isaiah chapter 7. And amen.